Well, good evening. My name is Ryan McCarthy. I'm one of the associate pastors here. It's a privilege to get to be with you, and Merry Christmas. Uh, yeah, I won't really mention that again. I realize I don't have anything about Christmas in here, so lest I forget, Merry Christmas. Thank you. That was right from your heart, wasn't it? Um, I, uh, I don't know how long ago this was now. It's been at least a couple of years, but I was at the gym, and there was a guy on a squat machine kind of like with an eyesight. I was like on a treadmill, headphones in, just minding my own business. So I had no choice but to watch this guy. And he was a little bigger than me, but he wasn't like huge. I know I'm huge, but this guy was just, you know, he, you know, he was just big, but not huge. He walks up to the squat machine and puts on a 45 and then another 45, puts on another 45 and he has two. Then he grabs a couple more. And pretty soon I'm losing count of how many 45s he has on. And so I'm thinking, I, I didn't do the math, but maybe 600 pounds, 700. I'm like, whoa, this guy's getting, must be really strong. And I'm just watching, waiting to see what's going to happen. He gets underneath the squat bar, and then he, he pulls out his phone and texts something, and then he grabs his water bottle and towel and leaves. Just leaves all that weight on there. And I'm thinking, peacock, <laughs> right? This guy's a peacock. He... I. He never intended to lift that weight. He just wanted for a moment to feel like Superman and have people see him put all that weight on the bar. I could be wrong. Maybe he got an emergency text, but that guy wasn't going to lift that anyway. And, and, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm just assuming, if I'm wrong with this guy, I'm right with other people. There are plenty of peacocks at the gym, right? Do you use that term? I made it up, I think. I, you know what I mean, right? They're, they're there to be seen. They're showing off. The people who are more concerned with like taking pictures of themselves and just, you know, seeing and being seen, but they're, they're uh, unsophisticated pride on display. It's the same guys who rev their engine at stoplights, right? There's a lot of places in life where you see pride in an unfiltered, unvarnished way. And it's just kind of like, it's humorous. You see it in middle school because middle school kids don't yet know how to like fake it. When I was in middle school, I carried drumsticks around in my back pocket from one class, like, as if like there was going to be a drum solo in math. It, it was my way, obviously, of saying, hey, ladies, I'm a musician. See the drumsticks? I mean, and that's, those are my peacock feathers right there. I learned how to like stop doing that because you kind of realize it's obnoxious, but I, the pride that led me to do that didn't disappear when I graduated from middle school. It shows up differently. It's little subtle ways that I even fool myself because the thing about pride is everybody around you sees it, but you don't. It's like bad breath. Everybody else knows you have it, but you don't. That's the nature of bad breath. Nobody with bad breath thinks they have bad breath, but everybody else can smell it. And, and I think the thing that's different about pride is that Pride is not just kind of an inconvenient smell. It's like coming from a cancer. It will kill us. Pride goes before destruction, according to Proverbs 16, 18. Uh, James 4, 8, 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride destroys people's lives. It destroys relationships. I, I can guarantee this, and I've done a lot of um, marriage counseling Pride is at the root of every difficult marriage. I mean, there's some exceptions that humble people can have difficult marriages for various reasons, but I would say a good 90 plus percent 
of difficult marriages and failed marriages, pride is at the root of it. Pride is at the root of all sorts of relational tension, all sorts of misery and self-pity and all these other things. It's a, this major problem. We all have it, but none of us are really aware of it. We might be aware of it in the people around us, but not in ourselves. And, and Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 18 that just kind of exposes the heart of pride and humility. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18, going to read verses 9 through 14. And my hope is in reading this and kind of just spending some time in it that you can identify yourself in it in some way or shape or form. And for some of us, I hope we're encouraged by it, but be careful if you're encouraged because you may be proud. But you may be encouraged by this. You may be convicted. You may be challenged. Wherever you are, though, my hope is that you identify yourself in it and resist the temptation to think, I wish my roommate were here to hear this or my sister or whoever. So Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus is being spoken about when it says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt and looked down their noses at others. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what does this teach us about pride? What does it teach us about a humility and about ourselves? Well, first, I want to say that in verse 9, it's, it's got to be pointed out that Jesus is addressing people who trust in themselves for righteousness. The, these people he's talking to and who he's meaning to kind of uh, target, they were trusting in themselves for righteousness. So what is righteousness? It's a very religious term, right? In both the Hebrew and the Greek, it's fair to say righteousness means to be right. It's at the root, righteousness, right? It's the desire. It's, it's, it's being, to be righteous is to be right. It's to be approved, to be accepted, to pass scrutiny. And to be righteous is that the feeling of righteousness is like that feeling that you get when you get an acceptance letter from a university or like a, a grad school you're applying to or when you get a well done from your boss or whatever it might be, it's that feeling like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. I pass scrutiny in the eyes of someone that I respect. And that's the sense of righteousness. It's closely tied to the term glory uh, in the, in just by way of this definition. Glory means uh, to, to uh, have matter, to be weighty. To, if something is, has glory, it has weight to it. So it matters. And, and so glory is to desire glory is to want to matter, 
to want to have a weighty substance to you. And righteousness is the desire to be right, to be okay. And they're closely linked in the sense that we all want righteousness and glory. We want to be okay. We want to be complete. We want to be respected. And, and the thing is, we're all looking for righteousness and glory, whether we're religious, whether we're Christians, whether we're non-Christians, we're all looking for it. In this story, though, Jesus is aiming his story at the Pharisees. And these are men who would have checked the right box that they're looking for glory and righteousness in the right place. They were looking to God. They were, you know, that's what they were really known for. And yet they were in reality trusting in themselves. They were unaware of what they were doing. When you look anywhere but God, you immediately, for your righteousness and glory, you immediately begin to hollow yourself out. You become the moment you look to anything other than God, you become fake without knowing it. You become a sham. And for example, Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So here, humility and pride, you think humility and pride are opposites. Well, humility is contrasted with um, uh, selfish ambition and conceit. Those are another, there's different ways of describing pride. Conceit is translated in the King James Version with the word vainglory, which is a really interesting term. Uh, pride can be called vainglory, and I just defined glory means matter, right? Weightiness. Vain means empty, vanity. So empty glory, meaningless matter or empty matter. It's, you're filling yourself with, if you're proud, you're filling yourself with air. There's a lack of substance. And you're filling yourself up in ways that you're looking for that glory, but it's, if it's apart from God, those things won't be able to actually fill you up. So we were created to find our glory and righteousness in God, but the moment we turned away from looking to him, we began to look to things like career, looks, romantic relationships, talents, you name it, humor. I mean, just we all have a different profile of things that we look to, and, but we, we are never really being filled up, so we're constantly driven to get more, to be filled up more. And we never arrive at the sense of rightness, righteousness, or glory. And according to Scripture, uh, that is all rooted in us turning away from God, the source of glory, this, the only one who is righteous. Imagine the moon saying, I'm tired of reflecting your light, son. And it decides to put up a giant curtain, build a wall between itself and say, son, I'm gonna give off my own light. What's gonna happen to the moon if it manages to put up a curtain between itself and the, and the sun? It's gonna go dark, right? Because the moon has no light of its own to give off. Its glory is a reflective glory. What we're seeing is the glory of the sun when we see the moon in the same way your glory comes from God. Your righteousness comes from God. But if you're trusting in yourself like this Pharisee, you've cut yourself off from that one. And no matter how good you are at doing whatever it is you do, you'll be chasing your tail. So I want you to see how this plays itself out in this, in this parable. Look at, the, look at the posture of those who are trusting in themselves. Verse 10, it says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the starting point here is both men are going to the right place. They are at least going to the temple to seek God. 
what I take from this is the line between pride and humility does not cut down between churchgoers and non-churchgoers. Given that we're all in church right now, we're all targets of what Jesus is about to say, okay? So he's speaking to people who are at least coming to the right place. I want to be clear about this. There are lots of places to seek glory. I mean, obviously you can do it in church or out of church, but outside of church, Consider the range of things. There's, you could look to the size of your paycheck, your clothes, your car, your swag, whatever, like your power and influence, the number of, of followers you have. How many people are asking you out can give you a sense of glory or how, how hot your, your date is. It can, can get really ugly too because you can get a temporary feeling of righteousness and a rush of glory from like getting high or you know, smoking drugs. Um, that's an old man talking about drugs. I don't know what. You can find glory in sexual conquests or the, uh, in getting revenge. There's ugly ways to do it, and there are feelings of glory and righteousness, but they can look really pleasing to God too. You can lead Bible studies. You can memorize scripture. You can have good theology. There are all ways we are looking, but Jesus zooms in first on this Pharisee. In verse 11 says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, it's not the most flattering prayer, right? I mean, his bad breath is just coming right out of the pages, right? But I want to be clear. I think this Pharisee was probably like really a good guy someone that we would respect, someone who was generous and self-controlled and had good theology, I guess. I mean, I, I, I want to start at the starting point that I think Jesus is starting with is that this guy was good, okay? But I want to make some observations about the pride we see in this Pharisee. First of all, pride obviously is self-centered. Do you hear it in the prayer? He starts off saying, God how many times does he mention God after that? Zero. How many times does he say I? Five times. I've had the time to count. Five times. I do this. I do that. I'm not like that. It's self-centered. Pride is self-centered. No news flash there. Pride, number two, is focused on externals, like behavior. He says, God, I thank you that I give. You know, I thank you that I, I, I fast. I'm doing these things. These are, I'm assuming they were varsity disciplines, right? I mean, how many of you fast twice a week? Don't raise your hand. I mean, but that was more than what the scriptures required for the Pharisees, by the way. So he really was going above and beyond. But the thing is, his goodness was coming from keeping the rules. There's a big difference between saying, is it, well, let me just ask you guys this. I know this isn't a discussion, but I'm going to ask you. Is it proud to say, God, I thank you that you've been giving me more joy. I think, thank you for making me more patient. The things that make me, that used to make me mad aren't making me mad anymore. Is that a proud prayer? I don't think so. I can know what's going on inside me and recognize God doing a work. And it's, but th those are internal things. They may or may not manifest in me keeping a certain track record, but they, they will play itself out. But if you just measure yourself by the externals like behavior, you can 
motivate yourself to do all sorts of good things for selfish reasons. You can keep your hands off your girlfriend, not to honor God, but because you don't want to lose your girlfriend. I mean, there's self-serving motives that you can come to anything. And if you just focus on the behavior, you're, you're coming short of what God actually has in mind. And we'll get more to that. But if, if you focus on behavior, sin is out there and it's avoidable. And righteousness is attainable. Number three, pride separates itself from others. You see in verse 11, the Pharisee, he stands by himself and he prays. Okay, because sin is out there, you can avoid it. Meaning certain people are really sinful. And if I don't associate with them, then I can kind of protect myself from getting contaminated with their ideas or with whatever, you know, with their sinful lifestyles. So if I'm not associated with certain people, I'm good. Number four, pride measures itself by comparing itself to others. His measuring stick is saying, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. And I believe he wasn't. He, he was not unjust. He's not an adulterer. He's, not a, he's, not like, he's certainly not a tax collector. When you're not looking to God and you're measuring yourself against if you're not measuring yourself against the backdrop of God's standards and his definition of glory, you will inevitably measure yourself by comparing yourself to others. And it's awfully convenient because there will always be people worse than you around to compare yourself to. You know, at least I'm not doing drugs like so-and-so or I'm not, nobody in the world is greedy because there's always someone more greedy that they can look at. Say, well, I'm not greedy like that guy. Nobody thinks they're greedy. This, this actually goes both ways. You can look down on people, but you also look up to them in, in a proud way. Galatians 5, 26 says, let us not become conceited, which is vainglorious, provoking one another and envying one another, provoking, looking down on others. At least I have a job, unlike my brother, or at least I'm, you know, he says I'm not like other men. Or envying is the opposite direction, looking up to people and saying, I, I wish I had that. I'll never be that good. I wish I had a V-shaped back like he does. I've thought that once. Do you ever, do you see how subtle and dysfunctional this is? It's this way of life, it never works. You never arrive when you focus on your behavior. Um, the only way to live up to God's standards if you're focusing on your behavior, is to redefine his standards and replace them. Like select the ones that seem attainable to you, but then quietly and ignorantly ignore the other ones. So um, in other words, you're not righteous, for example, because you lead a Bible study or because you don't look at pornography. You're not righteous because you work for a nonprofit organization or you serve the oppressed. Those things don't make us righteous. Pride says, I'm good only seeking part of God's standard, but being ignorant of the parts that we're ignoring. Just to pick on the Pharisee, I'm sure he was self-controlled. I'm sure he was careful to do God's will, but you can hear it in his prayer. He was judgmental. He was arrogant. He was not loving his brother. We're, we're, we're all blinds to a whole portion of ourselves. Chances are, those of you who get married are gonna get married to someone who sins differently than you. 
And then you're gonna see your spouse's sin really clearly and your spouse is gonna see your sin really clearly and you're both gonna think, look, for Brandy and I, I'm more of a people pleaser and she is more like very principled and, and just does the right thing and doesn't really care so much what other people think. Now, my tendency, I'm not very overtly rude very often because I fear man too much. Brandy can be rude because she doesn't fear man so much. I will think you're so rude at times when she's upset and wants to be in control. I'm thinking you're so rude and she's thinking, get a spine. We're both seeing each other's sin, but we're like, neither one of us are the full orbed picture of righteousness, right? This is true for all of us, but we're blind because we measure ourselves by the standards of choice and we can compare ourselves to others who aren't doing as well. And the truth is God's standard is perfection and he wants transformed behavior from the inside out. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you take it seriously, you should sweat because everything in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, you've heard it said, don't lust, don't commit adultery, but if you lust, you're committing adultery. You don't, um, he actually just, to sum it up, he says in uh, Matthew five twenty, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will certainly not go to heaven. Was he just speaking in hyperbole? Honestly, I think Jesus is saying, you have to be perfect to go to heaven. Now he's gonna solve that problem for us, but there is a standard that God wants and he wants us to, to sweat a little bit and take a look at his standards and measure ourselves against that. Because if you look to anything other than God, you will become hopelessly and helplessly proud. We will always fall short of God's glory, look to something else and end up chasing our tails and it will not work out for us. So instead of getting our bearings from looking up, we tend to get our bearings by looking around, seeing if we measure up in righteousness and glory. And then we wonder why there's this misery setting in and the relationships don't work. So let me just ask, just to pause for a second. What areas in your life are you compelled to compare yourself with other people? Where do you find yourself just automatically you know, measuring yourself or wishing you can attain to that or looking down your nose and maybe judging some other people, those are windows into your heart where there's, where there's pride. Where are you desperate to be productive and not fail? Where are you afraid of criticism? These are all things that point to where we don't actually feel a sense of righteousness, but we're looking for it. If you know, if you're looking to God for your righteousness, you, get, you have the, the ability to forget about yourself and not worry about yourself anymore because your actual glory is given to you in him. This is kind of a crude example, but if, if you're actually tall, you don't need to tell other people you're tall, right? Robert, how tall are you? Or Ben, how tall are you guys? Six, two. Six, two and a half. Thanks for disproving my point on that one. No. Yeah. So, okay. Have you guys ever had your feelings hurt by a short joke? No. You don't need to tell them. You know you're tall, tall enough. It's, not, it's a non-issue. You kind of forget about it. You're not comparing yourself to other people thinking, I'm taller than you. No. I've had tall thoughts. <laughs> I'm 5'7". <five, seven. laughs> have you noticed? If you, if you go back and listen to a lot of my talks, I usually have a tall illustration in there somewhere, you know. But... If we know we have glory, we wouldn't be so thirsty searching for it. 
If we knew we were righteous, we wouldn't be so thirsty trying to get it. But let's finish this out. Let's see what what happens when the spotlight shifts over to the tax collector. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So let me be clear. Like I said this about the Pharisee, this is true about the tax collector. The tax collector was probably a bad guy, like, like a dirt bag, bad. I mean, his job was he collected taxes from his brothers in the faith for the enemy. He became rich typically by collecting a lot more than he needed and pocketing the rest with the protection of the Roman police and the authority of the Roman government. The kind of guy you would want to kill in his sleep if you were trying to make it paycheck to paycheck, barely making it, okay? A bad guy profiting off the misery of his brothers to serve the enemy. That's not good, okay? So that's, that's a really, I believe, a bad guy. But the Pharisee being good, the tax collector being bad, pride and humility does not cut down the line between good and bad, between moral and immoral. It's, there's a different thing going on in pride and humility. And I would say the two different ways we learn to be lost, the two different ways to be proud, one way is by breaking all the rules, like the tax collector, and the other way is by keeping all the rules, like the Pharisee. The only difference, really, that the, between the Pharisee and the tax collector that matters here is the tax collector knows he's lost. The tax collector knows he's got a problem. The tax collector knows his need. That's the key. Humility begins with neediness, recognizing your need. The tax collector knows his need because he sees his sin. Humility begins with neediness. Verse 13, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The NAS translates it, translates it as the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So he's not just a sinner because certainly we're all sinners. No, I'm the sinner. And when you see God in, in his glory, you can't look up. I mean, I like that, that the tax collector, it says he wouldn't even look up. He wouldn't even look at, raise his eyes to heaven because he saw a glimpse first of God's glory and realized, oh my gosh, I am a sinner. It happened to good people too. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, he was a prophet. He sees God in his glory in the temple and he falls down and says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. As sinless angels are flying and with two wings, they're flying with two wings, they're covering their feet and sinless angels are covering their eyes with the other wings because they can't look at the glory of this holy God. If you see God in his glory, you, you say, I'm the sinner. Peter, uh, Luke chapter five, when Jesus catches all the fish, Peter realizes this is the son of God. He falls down and says, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That's the reaction of the tax collector here. He sees God's glory and all of a sudden he is the sinner. It doesn't matter where everybody else is. With you, God, I am the sinner. To understand the gospel is to be able to humbly look at yourself in the light of God's glory and realize I'm the biggest problem in my life. I'm the sinner. And here's, you don't have to be a bad person to come to this conviction. 
Paul said in 1 Peter, at 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst, of whom I am the foremost. Oh yeah, Paul, you wrote half the New Testament. You're so bad. No, I believe, I don't think he was just trying to sound humble. I believe that he saw enough of God's glory that he realized I disobey God deliberately. I fall so infinitely short. I'm the worst person I know. The more you know yourself in the light of God's glory, the more you're gonna see I am the sinner. My hope is that you come to a point and all of us come to a point where we realize that the bad things we've done and the good things we have done have all been in in a way, a form of rebellion against God unless it was God's grace leading us to do it. I mean, there there are good works that we do out of gratitude out of grace. His kindness leads to repentance. But a lot of times we're trying to be good because we're trying to put God in our debt. Like it, I, I remember thinking this way, God, if I can avoid pornography, then maybe I could be pure enough to be married. And I'm, God, you will, if, I, if I play by the rules, you will owe me a wife. I wouldn't have come out and said that, but that was a way of thinking. It's, it's serving myself. It's measuring myself by my behavior. And it is a way of using good works to become righteous. But what the what this tax collector teaches us is that all you need is need. All you need is need. That's why the Sermon on the Mount begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, blessed are the meek. Meek means needy. Blessed are the meek, for, theirs, uh, for they shall inherit the earth. So, Humility begins with neediness, and then next, humility brings us to God for mercy. The tax collector's only hope when he sees God's glory is mercy. You know, mercy means you don't get what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is, I deserve wrath. Have mercy on me, God. I'm a sinner. It's all we can ask for. It's saying, God, atone for my sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came and was the only one who could have said, God, give me justice, in which case he would have gone straight to heaven. The wages of sin is death. He's the only one who didn't sin, but instead he went to the cross and died and received the punishment that the tax collector earned, that you and I earned. And so that mercy is ours in Jesus. And so this is a... a, a, an illustration that I've often returned to because I think it maps out what's happening so beautifully. When you first become a Christian, let's see if this appears on the screen. Well, there's me. Is the, is the uh, cross illustration coming up? There we are. Okay, so you, you come to a point where you realize God is holy and I'm not, and someone tells you about Jesus. Oh, I can have a relationship with God through Jesus. And then I'm hoping that as I walk with God, I will become more like him and become more holy. But if that happens, I become more holy and I need grace less, right? But what actually happens is if I read my Bible seriously, God, I become more aware of God's holiness. Next slide. God, he doesn't become more holy, but I become more aware of his holiness. And then that light shines on me. And next slide. I become more aware of my sin. That is a scary feeling. You're not becoming more sinful, but you're more aware that you do the right things you do for the wrong reasons. 
you're, you're serving yourself even in your best moments and you, 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 your eyes are open to that and you start to have some despair. You think, I'm never gonna change, but then you find out that the cross was never that small. God was never that holy. You were never that good. And we're becoming more aware of the greatness of God's mercy. And it's that type of person who knows that they can't judge their brother. I'm the worst sinner that I know. There's nothing that you got. I'm, I, I'm like, my greatest talent is finding new ways to sin. And I'm not, I, I mean it. But I'm sinning less than I did before. And that's what growth in Christ looks like, is coming to a point of realizing, I need you, Lord. The more mature you are, the more you need God. Tim Keller said that the only thing that can destroy you eternally is a lack of humility. You can lack almost any other thing in life, but not humility, because humility is what connects you to God. Your neediness is what connects you to God. In fact, God's plan of salvation is basically to lift up the humble. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is so important to God that he will allow you to fail your way into true self-knowledge. How many of you have ever prayed for God to take away a sin pattern in your life and you find that it didn't go away? That's God mercifully allowing you to stew in your problems a little bit to deepen your humility because we need humility more than we need deliverance. I believe we need humility more than we need to be delivered from our particular struggles. And God is mercifully allowing those of us who actually have faith in him to come to a deeper awareness of our need. I will just briefly say, how much time do I have? I forgot to look at the clock. Five minutes, okay, good. It's like an eight-minute story. Um, I'm kidding. I became a Christian, and some of you have heard my testimony. It was my freshman year in col- at, at college, and I was an atheist, became a Christian on a bad mushroom trip, okay? That's a story that could be at least eight minutes. But I was the tax collector. I was running away from God by breaking all the rules. And the only thing I quit that night when God rescued me was shrooms. Then he had to scare me out of smoking pot. I had a very similar experience with that. I got in a drunk driving wreck. I got in trouble with promiscuity. There was a, it took me a year to, on the surface, look like a Christian. But by the end of that year, I started actually going to church. I started making Christian friends. I wasn't like going out and getting plastered. And I, but I couldn't kick the pornography habit, though. That was always kind of like around the medication of choice that when I was down and God didn't, I wasn't soaring high with God, that would be there for me. And it was very inconsistent. It would go away when I was dating someone, but then come back when I was single. And, and, but it was one of those things that was like, I was kind of managing it. It wasn't overtaking my life, but it was there. Then by the end of college, God called me into ministry and I discovered not a good idea to go into ministry and be looking at porn. You know, and I overheard someone say, you, you shouldn't be in seminary if you're looking at porn. And I think, better kick that habit. Well, I never tried so hard in my life to be pure than when I was in seminary. And largely was doing okay, but my mind would be in the gutter. I would, I would find myself fantasizing and just, just thirsty as anything because I was not finding any real joy in God. And I was just trying to cling on, white knuckling myself to stay pure and eventually would fell. 
And then, you know, the time that lasted there, it fell again. And, and it, God brought me to a point where he mercifully allowed me to discover I can't be righteous on my own, even with my compromised standards, because God wanted more from me than to not look at porn. But even with that standard, I couldn't quite live up. He was humbling me and he was breaking me of my own dependence because I was trying to convince God in those years of seminary, seminary that I could be righteous in my own willpower. That's the only way I knew how. He had to break me. And I, had to, and I came to a point where I confessed to the guys, a group of guys that I was leading in seminary and a bunch of the other guys struggled with the same thing and a revival broke out. But he, it only happens when he humbled me. When, he rec- when I opened my eyes to, he opened my eyes to the fact that I cannot be pure on my own. And the application of this is so obvious, but it's gonna not be so obvious when it gets particular with every one of us. So the application that I want you to walk away with is humble yourselves before God. I mean, that's what he says. Every, humble yourself so God can lift you up. Humble yourself before God. Now, what does that mean? I just thought through a few practical ideas and what sticks with you, then run with it. One, embrace your need of him. If you can't embrace it, discover it. Like you may not feel needy for God. You have to ask yourself why. Sometimes I can compartmentalize my sin and pretend it's over there and this is me. And I kind of stuff it, I suppress it, and I just don't really, I just, I just don't acknowledge it. And then I go and I, I convince myself that I'm a fairly good guy. But when I, in those seasons, I'll kind of avoid God. But when I start praying, he starts to bring up this fact that like, I need to do business with him. And I need to embrace my neediness that like, God, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. I'm struggling with self-pity, whatever it might be. And it's opening up to him. As you draw near to God, your neediness will become a little more clear. As you're in a small group, some of us only share prayer requests like my aunt's having LASIK on Tuesday, right? And the truth is like your mind's in the gutter and you're really discouraged and you're even thinking about harming yourself and you're talking about your, your aunt's LASIK. No, you bless your group when you say, I can't get it together. I've spent the last three nights staying up till three in the morning, uh, scrolling social media, and I'm just depressed. And when you do that, the person who's being surfacy in your group wants another chance to share their prayer request because you just blessed them with your neediness. So another potential way of humbling yourself would be uh, confess your secret struggles to a trusted friend. That will humble you. Um, Fast from something that distracts you. It, it, you know, some of you might struggle with eating, so I'm not going to say fast from food, but some of you might. I mean, it might be a good idea. Maybe fast from social media or a game that you play on your phone, and every time you have a temptation to, to indulge in it, let it be a reminder, God, I need you more than I need to check this. Whatever it is, pursue different ways to get serious before a holy God that we have no business being in front of apart from his mercy. And my hope is that God be merciful to me, the sinner becomes our heartfelt prayer because that's where joy comes from. That's where the ability to receive criticism, criticism from someone who loves you and be like, yeah, of course I struggle with that, but thanks for pointing it out because I didn't see it from that angle. You, 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 you were free from defensiveness. 
You're able to forget about yourself and love other people where, where there's humility. In closing, you could call humility the blessing of self-forgetfulness because when you're humble, you're filled with God's glory who loves to pour into the needy. He loves to give himself to those who are poor in spirit, bankrupt before him. He fills you up, gives you joy, and allows you to experience life in him, loving other people. And that's my prayer. So God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you are gentle in the way you convict proud people like me, like us. And we need, Lord, we need to be humbled and it's scary to, to be humbled. That, the whole prospect is scary, but you're gentle, you're good, you're loving. And I pray that as, we, as you open our eyes to your glory, would you gently humble us? If it needs to be hard, make it hard. But Lord, give us the life of experience and humility at your feet. And I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.